When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now, we see indistinctly as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. What you just heard is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We've been studying this uh, short chapter for uh, this entire month, and today we get to conclude it. So if you brought a Bible or you've got a Bible app on your phone, go ahead, open it up to 1 Corinthians 13 as we work through these verse by verse. If you do not have a Bible and would like one, would you just simply raise your hand up, and uh, one of our ushers will come and and give you a copy, because we'd love for you to have it, even though we'll have the Scripture up on the screen. Well, have any of you ever gotten caught up in one of those which is the greatest debate? You, you know the ones like, which is the greatest movie of all time? Or, or maybe an argument breaks out among friends of what's the best vacation spot? Or, or of course, the most important debate of all time. What is the greatest college football team of all time? And, and it was clearly the 1995 Nebraska Cornhuskers. I mean, there's absolute consensus on that. Okay, based on your faces and your response, there's obviously not consensus on that. That's how most of these debates go, isn't it? Like, you can argue, yeah, this is the greatest, but then someone else will argue, no, no, it's not. You rarely ever come to consensus. I remember about uh, two, three years ago, some website published a list of the greatest, like, I think it's like top 20 greatest communities in the entire U.S., and in that list was Waverly Iowa. Couldn't believe it. I just moved here. I was like, wow, I'm in one of the greatest spots in America. But then like two months, three months later, a different website published a list of just the best communities in Iowa alone. Now, Waverly still made the top 10, but in the national list, Waverly was the only Iowa city. But then in the Iowa list, like Waverly's down here. It's like you can't come to consensus. Is it one of the greatest or is it not? That's how these debates often seem to go, and yet we get into them because I think there's something in us that wants to be attached to greatness. This is why we we attach ourselves to to one team, And, and then when they win their Super Bowl or they win the World Series, we somehow feel like we've done it with them, and so because they're great, we by extension are great. Or, or we put all of our hopes into a presidential candidate, hoping that they win the election. And when they do, now I'm great with them. This is even how people pick churches. They, they don't pick a church based on the doctrine. They will pick a church based on, well, is it a great church? Like, are there a lot of people there? Because if there's a lot of people there, it must be pretty good. And so I'm going to go because if it's great, then I will be great. Today, as we get into the scriptures, we're going to find ourselves in one of these little debates of what is the greatest. But in this one, it actually isn't a debate. There's actually going to be complete consensus on what is the greatest. Because today, we're going to see Paul say that love is the greatest. But here's the invitation. You, this time, can actually attach yourself to this greatness, and it will then lead you to also be great. But I'll warn you, It's going to cost you. I think it's worth it. But this greatness, it's
It's going to be difficult to get to. So let's pray. Father, as we get into the scriptures today, would you be our teacher? Would you help each of us to see just how great love is and that as we attach ourselves to this true love, not not the way that, that our culture defines it, but the way you define it, that we too can be great and help us, Lord, to have the guts to go to that greatness. And it's in Jesus' name I pray this. Amen. So let's jump in today. As we finish this up, we do just the last three verses. So we start today in verse 11. Paul writes, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I had a great childhood growing up. I grew up with absolutely great parents, you know, now I have four children. I love deeply and dearly. And regularly, I will have people give me feedback like, Aaron, you've got amazing kids. You and your wife must be doing something right. And I usually have to be honest. Okay, it's probably more her than me. But also, any part that I have to play, I've got to say, it's because of my parents. My parents just had such a great influence on me. And then I grew up in just this great house. It was perfect for hide-and-seek. I had a big yard. It was great for one-on-one football until my brother would tackle me in the end zone and jump on me with his knees. Otherwise, it was a lot of fun. I had a lot of great friends. I could ride my bike around town. I mean, it was a wonderful childhood. If you did not have a good childhood, I just want to say I'm sorry. I wish you could have experienced what I experienced. And so if you had a bad childhood, I just want to say, now make your adulthood awesome. Just overcome that. But, but if you're like me and you had a great childhood— I wouldn't blame you one bit if you said, man, I wish I could go back. I mean, because think about it. Someone's making you food and putting it on the table. You're not having to pay mortgage or rent. You don't have the, you know, you don't have to take care of a flooded basement like we did a little while ago, you know. You don't have these heavy responsibilities. Like the worst thing in your day is when mom and dad say it's time to go to bed. That's a pretty good life, all right? So I wouldn't blame you one bit if you want to go back to childhood. In December of this last year, a news story broke. It was kind of in the middle of the whole Bruce Jenner, Caitlyn Jenner controversy. Because in this story, a guy named Paul over in the UK, when he was 46 years old, decided he no longer wanted to be male, that inside he was actually female. But because of the whole Caitlyn Jenner, Bruce Jenner, this thing wouldn't have normally made news. But this thing was making all sorts of ripples in the news circles. Because not only did Paul decide he was Stephanie, and yes, that is how he spells Stephanie, he decided that he's no longer a now 52-year-old man, that instead he decided he was an 8-year-old girl. And so Stephanie found herself a couple of adoptive parents, and he would play color, play dolls with their little granddaughter, and, you know, sleep with his dolls, and he just lives a nice little girl life. And this has a few people, as you could imagine, going, what? Few people mock it. Few people, who cares? And few people supportive. But to my surprise, there was a number of people very, very against this. And it was people right within the trans community themselves. People who would identify as saying, I was assigned one sex at birth, but inside my gender is different. And yet even they were not in favor of Paul becoming Stephanie. Not because he felt like a woman inside, but because of this quote. Stephanie says, I can't deny I was married. He was married for like 25, 30 years. 
I can't deny I have children. He actually has seven. But I've moved forward now, and I've gone back to being a child. I don't want to be an adult right now. This is why they're up in arms. It isn't that he's saying, I no longer want to be male. I really feel female. It's that he's saying, I just don't want to be an adult. I just want to go back to being a kid. Because you see that inside each of us, we intrinsically know that adulthood is better than childhood. And don't get me wrong, childhood is awesome. It's great. You know, these little ones that were up here on the stage with their parents, we're celebrating them. Childhood is fantastic. However, if 12 months from now, little, little Galen or little Nathan was doing the exact same things, they weren't walking, they weren't crawling, they weren't, you know, starting to, you know, use their mouths and form words, we would probably start to get concerned. But when they take their first step, we applaud, we celebrate them maturing. When, when our little girl goes off to school for the first time, yeah, it might bring a tear to your eye, but yet you know this is good. When you see your son walk across that stage and the tassel goes across the cap from one side to the other, you go, whew, he actually graduated. This is good. And when a dad walks his little girl down the aisle to hand her off to another man, it's good. Don't get me wrong, childhood is wonderful, it's precious, but we all know that adulthood is greater than childhood. It's a good thing, it's actually the better thing. Paul was talking in verses 8 through 10 about how love goes on forever. He was redefining it. Love was not some temporary feeling, love is forever. And so he's continuing that with this analogy. However, he's also shifting it to help make his argument that love is the greatest. And so he wants to pound his point home, so he gives yet another analogy, and that's in verse 12. For now, all right, for now, in this life, we see indistinctly as in a mirror. We're going to explain that in just a little bit. But then, when we go to heaven, we'll see face to face. Now, I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Have you ever been told you're going to meet someone, and so like you're shown their picture first? Maybe you see it on Facebook, or someone hands you a, a physical photograph. I don't know if they make those anymore. You know, but you, you look at that, and you see the person. You're like, okay, this is the person I'm looking for. This is who I'm expecting to meet. And then the person actually walks in, and you, you're surprised. Like, they're taller, or maybe shorter than you thought. Or, or, you know, they're just a little thinner, or slightly better looking. Like, you looked at the photo, and you thought you knew what they were like, but then when you see them face to face, it's different. This week I learned that in Corinth, the city where this church is, that Paul's writing this letter, they were known for their mirrors. But their mirrors were not like our mirrors. Their mirrors weren't nice and crystal clear, giving a very clear reflection of, of reality. Their mirrors were made of brass. And, and so they would go in and polish these mirrors so heavily that you could see your reflection in it. But yet it would still be dim. I imagine two little boys running up to the mirror, and they start, you know, playing and poking and, and looking in it. And they, when they move, the reflection moves, and they're just fascinated by it. And they're looking at themselves going, is that what I look like? But then they could look over at their friend, and they'd look in the mirror and see, well, that's not what you look like. You look like this. And they could see that that's just merely a dim reflection of the reality that's here. And Paul is saying that when this life is done— you will now see fully 
It won't be looking like through a dim brass mirror. It will be crystal clear. And so seeing face to face is greater than seeing just through a dim reflection. So Paul's starting to make his case. Adulthood is greater than childhood. Seeing face to face is greater than just looking through a reflection. And he's saying all this to help now help make his case. And he does it in a, actually, to me, a very startling way. Verse 13. He says, Now these three remain faith, hope, and love. Let's look at each of them. Faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In other words, faith is just merely knowing the reality of the invisible. Let, let me give you an example. How many of you have ever seen the love of your spouse or like your, your parents? Now, you're probably going, well, I, I've seen it. And I'm going to argue, no, you've actually seen evidences of it. Like wives, when you walk in and there's a bouquet of flowers on the table, that's evidence of your husband's affection for you. But that's not, the flowers aren't actually his love. Or husbands, you come home and there's a card or an envelope your wife gives you, an insider tickets to that concert or that sporting event, and you just like, oh my goodness, she loves me. But that's evidence of love. You, you may feel it in their hug. You might get an idea of it in their eyes, but that's not love. None of you have ever walked into the house, and right there on the kitchen table or in the middle of the living room, you've seen a big old heaping ball of love. Now, love itself, it, it's invisible, and yet you know it's real. That is faith. If you're human, you exercise faith. When you walked in and you put your trust on that chair, you were exercising faith. You, you didn't know the dimensions of the chair. You didn't know what the weight they're saying that supported. You have no idea what the reputation of these chairs are, and yet you still put your faith fully on it. Bosses all the time exercise faith that their employees are actually going to do the job. Now, if you have a boss who micromanages you, you probably disagree with that. But typically, a good boss has faith. Employees, they have faith that they're actually going to get paid for their work. Students show up at school and they don't wonder, is our teacher going to show up? They just have faith that, yeah, he or she's going to be there. Pro, pro athletes, they have faith that the coaches that they hire are actually going to help them improve in their sport. Even atheists exercise faith. They, they believe that there's no God, but that there was this big bang, and, and that there's been an evolutionary process that has brought us to this point. And maybe they're right about evolution, but they haven't seen it. They didn't watch it. They couldn't sit there and say, oh, it happened here. There's evidences of it, but they're still exercising faith that it really existed without a God. All of us exercise faith. But if you claim to follow Jesus, if you say that you are Jesus-centered, that Jesus died on a cross for the forgiveness of your sins, and that's the most important thing to you, then faith is absolutely essential. Because you were not there when he hung on a cross. You were not there when he came bursting forth out of a grave on that Sunday morning. You have not touched the holes in his wrist. And yet, you know that the Son of God came to earth, took on human flesh, lived a sinless life, yet died a sinner's death in your place. 
And you were putting all of your faith, all of your trust on it, just as if you were sitting in a chair saying, this is my identity. This is what I'm about. And that is faith. You cannot follow Jesus without faith. If you're the type of person who just says, oh, yeah, there's, there's a you know, God, and yeah, I believe there's a Jesus, but you don't put your trust in it, you're not exercising faith. If you're going to follow Jesus, you have to put all of your faith, all of your trust in this crazy story and say, I'm all in. And if I'm wrong, I'm dead meat because I believe it truly happened and it's really true. That's how essential faith is. That's how great faith is. And yet, love is greater. Then Paul says another word, says the word hope. Proverbs 13, 12 tells us that hope deferred makes the heart sick. That that if you take hope and you set it aside, you delay it, you remove it, it makes you sick in your heart. It makes you sad. It will even make you depressed. If you've ever lost a loved one or a close friend to suicide, you know it's because your friend lost hope. You see, hope always believes that something better is coming. It always says, the best is yet to come. But when you've lost hope, you don't believe that tomorrow will be better, or the day after, or the week, or the month, or the year. It seems like it's never going to get better. You lose hope, and your heart gets sick. But if you follow Jesus, you have hope. You have hope in a Father. That no matter how difficult life gets here, Even if it feels like you're going through hell, you know a better day is coming because there is a sovereign God on his throne who's overseeing everything, and you trust he really has this. I may not fully see it. I may not totally get it, but I believe he has it. So I have hope. I have a complete conviction he's got this and that the best is yet to come. I would argue you cannot follow Jesus without hope. Hope is absolutely essential to having a relationship with God. That's how great hope is. And yet, love is greater. How in the world can the Apostle Paul write that? Because as I I look at it, hope is really, really important. I mean, it's essential. You cannot have a relationship with God without faith. You cannot have it without hope. These things are essential ingredients. So how can he argue that love is better? He can say it for this reason. When your life ends, and if your faith has been fully placed upon Jesus, the curtain of this life will pull up, and you will walk into glory. And you will no longer believe, have a conviction in the unseen, because your faith will now be made sight, and you will see Jesus. You will see the wounds in his wrist. He will have his arms open wide. You will actually get to hug him. You will get to fall at his feet. And you will no longer be seeing him through the dim mirror of the scriptures, or through the words of a pastor, or through the words of some song. You will see him face to face. And in that moment, you're not needing to place your faith in him, because you see him. And yet you will be bursting forth with love like you never thought you could. That's why love is greater than faith. And when you stand before the throne of God and you now realize that the 
pain of life is over. You don't have to go through depression anymore. You don't have to go through the cancer. You don't have to face the difficulties. It's now done. It's past. And it's no longer the best is yet to come because the best is now here. You're standing before the throne of God, the creator of the universe, and he is saying, welcome. You are going to love him like you never thought you could. That's why love is greater than even hope. Love is the greatest. Too often when we just think of it the way the world thinks of it, we see it as just some feeling, it's just some emotion, it's just this nice thing, but it comes and goes. Man, when you see true love, you realize this thing is the most amazing thing in the world. And the reason is love has a name, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is the greatest this world has ever seen. So now, this means there are some implications upon how we live. We have an opportunity to decide whether or not we're going to attach to this greatness. If you do not follow Jesus, maybe you're, you know, like many people in our world, they would say, oh yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. But if you're honest with yourself, you've never placed your faith fully upon Christ. It's like the chair. I mean, you could know all about the chair, but until you actually sit in it, you're not demonstrating faith. I'm going to invite you. Place your faith in Jesus. I know the story is crazy. To think that there's, there's triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and that the Son came down and took on human flesh, lived a sinless life, and yet goes and dies a sinner's death in our place so that our sin could be forgiven. I realize it's a crazy story, and yet it's true. And so I invite you to find Jesus and begin to follow him. Put your faith in him. That is now beginning to follow the greatest thing ever, Jesus. And Jesus is love. And it will make all the difference in your life. And if you already follow Jesus, then I got to remind you that it took faith for you to, place your, to begin your journey with Jesus. And yet love is greater. And you should have hope even through the difficult, most difficult of things, and yet love is greater. And so that means that love is greater than your marriage. It means that love is greater than your kids. It means love is greater than your job. It's greater than your retirement plan. It's greater than the pains of this last year. It's greater than the joys of this past weekend. It's greater than any relationship, any experience, any pain you've ever gone through. That's how great love is. And because of that, it now radically alters how you live. That means you no longer go into your marriage for what you can get from it and how it makes you feel. You now go into your marriage to give this agape, unconditional love. Because as we saw in week one, love is a verb. It's an action. So you no longer go into marriage saying, I want you to complete me. I want you to make me happy. Because you have God. He completes you. He's given you all the love you need. You are fully known. You are fully loved. So you can go and give. And when you give, you are sacrificing yourself. And now you're loving like Jesus loved. That's why I said, you have an opportunity to attach to greatness, but it's going to cost you. Because this type of love that Paul is talking about, the type of love that is like Jesus, is a sacrificial love. It means giving up yourself, your desires, for the good of others. If you are a parent, 
You do this all the time. There are moments where you have to parent your kid, and you've got to do what's good for them, even when they're screaming and yelling and they hate it. You're doing it because you love them. But the parent who looks at their kid and just like, I want this kid to make me look good, now they're not truly loving the kid. They're only loving themselves. But man, when you have this selfless love for this child, when you're willing to sacrifice for yourself, okay, so the parent in the grocery store thinks you're a horrible parent because your kid's screaming at the top of their lungs. You don't worry about that because your attention's on your child. You love them. You are for their good. So you will do what's needed and necessary to raise them into the type of person who will contribute to this world and go and love as well. Do you see how this type of love impacts your marriage, your parenting, it impacts your workplace, it impacts your neighborhood, it impacts your world. Because you are going into it, not of what can I get from it, you're going into it of what can I give? What can I sacrifice? Because then when you live with that type of love, as difficult as it is, you change the world. It may not be the world, maybe their world. And that's all the difference that God is calling you to. That's how great love is. So I'm going to invite you, attached to this love, because when you do, you become part of the greatest, you too can become great. If you are a first-time visitor with us, I want to say thank you so much for being here. I'm glad that you're here. I hope you have gotten something out of this. But right now, before I finish, I'm going to talk to my Riverwood family. Please listen in. Do not ignore. But I'm talking to them for a moment. Riverwood, I want to let you know that we are growing in love. And I love it. I want to see us be the type of church that truly believes that love is the greatest. And we're on that path. We are getting there. I see it when you guys sacrifice to go and serve at the food bank every month. I see it in the way you guys jump in here, getting up early to come and set up or sticking around late to help us tear down. I see it in the way you guys are giving of your time, your energy, that when you guys get together in a growth group, I've seen relationships form and you guys are loving each other and caring for each other. We are becoming a loving community. But imagine with me if we are the type of church that truly believes that love is the greatest and then lives that out. If we lived as a completely selfless church, we would change the world. And it doesn't matter if we're a small, new, little church. It doesn't matter if we're in a city of only 10,000 people. We can see God do amazing things through us simply because we believe Jesus is the greatest, He is love, and so therefore we go to be a blessing. And we would find ourselves having the deepest relationships we ever thought possible right here within our own church family. And we wouldn't feel like anyone new walking in those doors would be a threat to us. Instead, we welcome them with open arms because we are ready to sacrifice for ourselves to help them find and follow Jesus. Imagine what a church like that looks like. It would change the world. And so I call you to live like love is the greatest. May it impact your marriage. May it impact your parenting. May it impact your workplace. May it impact your friendships. May it impact your neighborhood. May it impact your world. Because love is the greatest. And love has a name. His name is Jesus. 
And of that, there is no debate. And so, Father, I pray that you would do what only you can do, that you would change us from the inside out, and you would help us to see that Jesus is love, and he is the greatest. And as we keep our eyes on him and be Jesus-centered ourselves, we will then live like he lived and love like he loved, and we would sacrifice ourselves, and we would no longer use relationships for what we can get from it. Instead, we would look at it for what we can give into it. And we would not look at this life and thinking things circle around us. Instead, we want to see ourselves circle around you and see how are you sending us to be a blessing in our homes and in our neighborhoods and in our workplace places. So God, make us great, not for our name, but for yours. Help us to live with this agape, sacrificial love and see just how great it is. Lord, I pray for those here that have faith, that have placed their faith in you. Thank you for that essential ingredient. And thank you for those that have hope that is a gift from you. And yet, Lord, there are people here that probably haven't placed their faith in you. Maybe today they they feel like they've lost hope. Would you restore that to them? Would you let them see it? But let them see it's because you love them. Jesus, you went and died on a cross for them. That Even though their faith was not in you, you still paid their penalty. So right now I pray for anyone that, that needs you, that wants you, that wants to begin a journey of following you. That right now, that they would just, in the privacy of their own heart, just pray and admit they're a sinner, they're separated from you, and yet you welcome them in. You love them. You paid the penalty for them. That while their sin deserved death, you took the penalty, allowing us to come back into a relationship with you. Today, would you begin their journey of following Jesus? God, would you do these things? Would you do it for your glory? Would you do it for our joy? And would you help us to live like love truly is? greatest. And it's in the name of the greatest one ever that we pray this. Amen.